I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hi, everybody. The only reason I know what day it is right now is because my amazing podcast editors need me to send my episodes to them on Sunday so they can get them ready for Thursday. Are anyone else's days mishmashing together? Anyways, I'm excited for you to hear my conversation with my next guest. I'm talking to a very special counselor today with over 20 years of experience supporting people with disabilities and their families. There's such a web and so many layers to what our life is like. There's depression, anxiety, grief, feelings of not doing enough, living in fear for various reasons, the isolation... Sometimes all of those at the same time. Imagine talking to a therapist who knows your language. And I'm not just talking about the emotional one around our unique circumstances, but like the jargon we use all day. IEP, AFO, G-Tube, DDA, OTPT, SLP. She gets it. Something I loved so much that she said was that it is her goal to have some competition in her field. Spoken like a true advocate. She's the sweetest, and you're going to love her. I hope some of you can connect with her if her services are available for you. If anything, it's comforting to know someone like her exists. She has so much understanding, and her approach to mental health for our world is really gentle and insightful. Here's my conversation with the amazing Rose Reef. Hello, Rose. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think this is going to be such a valuable episode to put out there. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's get into it. Okay. Well, why don't you just tell me a little bit about what you're doing and why you're doing it? Sure. That story starts about 17 years ago. I had just graduated from college. I'm in North Carolina. So I'd gone to the University of North Carolina and I was working fresh out of school as a case manager, overseeing an independent living department, working with adults with all sorts of disabilities. I worked in some group homes and I really, really loved loved that role and that work. But I found over the years that I was in that role that there were just not a lot of mental health services geared towards adults with disabilities. There was a lot for school-aged kids, but then, you know, after the 18 to 22 age range, everything just sort of fell off. And I realized, you know, this is a huge need in our community. There need to be counselors who are effective who want to work with people with disabilities. So 
I was very fortunate that I was able to go back to UNC within the the med school there. There's a program that's specifically geared towards rehabilitation counseling, which is counseling for people with disabilities who also have mental health disorders. So it's exactly what I needed to be doing. And I got through grad school and came out with my master's and started a counseling practice where I really just wanted to work with adults with disabilities. And then I don't know, maybe six or so months in, I started to get a lot of calls from parents saying, you know, I, I read your blog or I heard you speak at some conference and I just feel like you understand this world a little bit better than other therapists who I've tried to explain it to. And so I get that you work with people with disabilities, but I would like to come see you just as a parent trying to support my child. <laughs> and so now, seven years later, my practice is, um, it's about 50-50 work with adults with all sorts of rare genetic disorders, you know, Down syndrome, autism, cerebral palsy, aphasia, all kinds of disabilities. And then I work also with caregivers, whether that's parents or spouses, siblings. Basically, if, if you have a disability or love someone with a disability, you're welcome at my practice. Mm, I love that, Rose. And I think it's it's so important to have this specialization. I mean, I wouldn't call a patent attorney if I was in a car accident. And I really feel the same way about my therapist. Exactly. It's silly, this analogy, but I use it a lot to help sort of help people understand the world of therapists now. It's like 30 years ago, if you wanted sushi, there was probably one sushi restaurant in your town and that's where you went. And that's kind of how therapists were back then. Everybody was a generalist. Everybody just kind of saw whoever. But now if you want sushi, well, there's, you know, the romantic place you go for date night sushi. And there's the big fun place where you go to get the party boat with, you know, all your friends. And there's the really authentic Japanese place. Like you can have a very niche experience within that world of sushi. And therapy has kind of become the same thing where we're all, most of us, very specialized. You know, we really have a niche population that we are good at working with, that we focus in with our continuing ed stuff, and and that's who, you know, we can best serve. So I always encourage parents who get discouraged, who live in other parts of the country, you know, who say, there's nobody like you near me. And I'm like, I bet there is. We just have to find them. That's the challenge. Yeah, we may have to make like a master list. Yes. <laughs> Although you do do some telehealth, right? Or some video counseling. Do you offer that through your service too? I do. Yeah. I'm, so I'm board certified in that. The trick with that is that the the state laws and our licensing boards have not quite caught up to what the technology can do. So this is starting to change. But right now, for most states, including where I am in North Carolina, it's dependent on where the client is at the time of service. So I could be anywhere in the world, but my client has to be in North Carolina because that's where I'm licensed. So a lot of states are recognizing this is a problem. People travel for work, people move. And again, if you want that specialized person, you know, and you, you don't mind working with somebody who's across the country or even across the world, there's really no reason you shouldn't be able to do that. So that will probably change in the next few years. But for now, we're all sort of limited to working just in the states where we're licensed. Okay. Well, even if it's just, you know, letting people know that there are therapists who are concentrating on this topic, I feel like that's, you know, just a little nudge. <laughs> and I think it will be super helpful to know. Absolutely. So why don't you tell me, like, maybe what are some warning signs that we should be looking out for in ourselves or in others in our tight knit family who are going through these types of things with rare disease and disability that maybe it's time to consider professional help? 
the things that parents often say when they come to me is just, you know, I, I pushed and pushed for so long and I kept pushing towards a finish line that ultimately I realized was never there. And I realized, you know, this isn't ever going to get better, but I can get better at handling it. I can feel better in how I'm coping with it. And it's that realization that usually leads people to question, could this be easier? Could I be handling things better? Could I have some new skills and supports that would make this feel different because I realize this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. Yes, definitely. And I feel like for me and a lot of people I know, of course, we're living in like this day to day, like crisis to crisis scenario. But I really feel that we're fully living in the past with like whatever traumatic event happened with our child or our family member. And we're also fully living in the future of like worry and fear of like, how are we going to do this? So there's a lot of noise yes. all the time. Yeah. And like, what would you say are just like some simple reminders or tools that maybe we can use when all of that seems to be pretty consuming? I mean, I know your listeners have probably heard this a million times, but it really is true. You cannot pour from an empty cup. You cannot keep pushing and trying to give everything you have to everyone else to hold it together, to be the glue or the linchpin for your family, however you think of yourself. At some point, you know, your cup is going to crack. And so, you know, I, I think parents get sort of stuck sometimes in what should I do? What should I do? And I always encourage parents, you know, there's a real mindset shift that has to happen. It does not matter what you do. It could be yoga, it could be running, it could be scrapbooking, it could be, you know, watching old movies from the 40s. It really doesn't matter what it is that you do that helps you to feel better. What matters is that you believe that it's important that you do it every day. That's the key. Making a choice for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You put it so well, as much noise as there is, I realize that I need to take a minute to be quiet just with myself. I fully believe and that. And do something good that's just for me. Yeah. Cause I, I work with so many parents and they say, you know, well, I volunteer for, you know, I'm planning the conference around my child's rare disease and that brings me a lot of joy. And I say, okay, but that's so wrapped up in your identity as a parent to this child. You know, is this something you would have done if you didn't have this child? And, and usually the answer is no. And so I say, that's great. If that's important to you and you love doing that, let's keep doing that. But we need to add in some things that are just yours that are just about your identity outside of of being a parent to this kiddo and you know something that is just for you that's funny you mentioned that i was having a conversation with a grandparent who's a guardian to his uh disabled granddaughter and he was telling me how important it was for him to find something that was all his because obviously it was such a consuming existence right it's being a caretaker and i had sort of thought for a while, well, this podcast is something that's really fulfilling to me and does a lot of things for me, but it's not just mine. It is about my son and I wouldn't have been doing it otherwise. So I probably need to add on to that and right. do something completely separate. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been noodling that around for the last couple of weeks. All right. All right. It's so important to just like break away and remember who we were, right? Because we're here and we were our own people. Yeah, this may have been an unexpected transition phase, whatever you want to call it, something something that you weren't expecting on your journey as a parent or just in life. So how can you incorporate that, but keep your own trajectory going? Don't let this completely divert you in a new direction. Yeah, totally, totally. 
So I don't know if you can answer this question ethically, but as a parent, I was just wondering, what do you hear from the adults? Is there a common thread about among the adults with disabilities that you're talking to that they wish maybe their parents or their caregivers would have done differently? Or is there something that affects them more than other things that maybe we as parents could change now? So, you know, the biggest things that I see are in the folks with disabilities who I work with are also the biggest things that most counselors work with, which are depression and anxiety. You know, depression at a very fundamental level is is being stuck in the past and the things that happened to us in the past. And anxiety is being stuck in the future and unable to focus on the moment because you're too worried about what's coming and feeling ill-equipped to handle it. And so a lot of the young adults, especially who I work with, I don't think they would articulate it in this way, but maybe through our work together, we see ways that their parents tried to protect them and shelter them from having to make difficult decisions, having to do things for themselves, which is why with the parents that I work with, I'm a big proponent of, okay, if you have this vision of how independent your child could be one day, what are the little steps we can start taking today to move in that direction? Because if you just suddenly expect that, you know, say you're packing your 12-year-old's lunch right now, but you imagine that when he's 15, he'll be able to do that for himself. Well, what can we start doing now and putting in place now so that you don't wake up one day, realize he's 15 and he's no closer to being able to make a sandwich than he was three years ago. And then I think, you know, kids through that process get a lot of self-confidence, pride in effort, not so much outcome maybe, but you know, that I, I tried and I did my best and I tried to take care of myself is really huge. I think for a lot of the, the young adults, especially that I work with. Yeah. I feel like we definitely probably have some control issues making sure that everything gets done and they're taken care of <laughs> properly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a mother, I've got kids at home. I totally get it. There are times where it's just easier, faster, cleaner, better when I do the thing. All um, of those things. Yes. You know, yeah. I don't want to sit here and say, this is how it has to be every time I've absolutely stepped in and just done it sometimes. <laughs> but you know, if, if you can be intentional about it, if you can be thinking about it so that at least you're giving your, your child some opportunities to do for themselves what they can and just kind of accepting that it, it won't be perfect. It will be messier. It will take longer. There may be tears from both of you, but you know, it's in the long run going to be giving them more control, more sense of autonomy, more sense of confidence and, and self-worth. And that's really what we're trying to get, even if the sandwich doesn't look very pretty. Totally. Everyone wants that at their core, right? Right. Also, yeah, just remembering like in these appointments, right, we go to all these therapy appointments every single day and remembering what it's for, which is this exactly, right? Like figuring out a way so they can eat themselves, make a sandwich themselves, get in the car themselves. We're going to these therapy appointments to have that be our outcome, hopefully. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, keeping in mind, I always talk with the parents I work with around the idea of, you know, there's what you want most. And sometimes that's at odds with what you want now and having the intention to choose, you know, for the future in, in most of those cases is, is in the long run going to give you a much easier time as a parent, trusting that your, your child is equipped to handle the world. So what about things just on day to day for parents right now? Like I know for me, things I have just known that I've had to create boundaries around like pretty early on, I realized I had to create certain boundaries. Like I'm a hairstylist and I see, you know, however many people in a day, and it's just really kind of a hard rule for me. Like, I don't talk about politics. I don't watch the news. I don't have time to do all this. Like, all of this negativity in that stuff, like, it 
can't even be in my brain right now. Like I just can't even process it. Certain social settings, I can't go to them. I just don't have the room for a lot of things. And I'm learning to say no also, which is really empowering. What are a few of your money pieces that you would give to parents? That's obviously nothing's an easy fix, but maybe maybe a couple of your top ones that you would give to parents like me dealing with sort of these day to day things that they need to maybe create some boundaries around. The first thing that I would give to you is congratulations, because I think a lot of people (laughs) feel that stress but aren't brave enough to set the boundary and say, you know what, I'm willing to miss out on what's going on on Instagram or, you know, the, the latest news stories and to set those hard boundaries, especially, you know, for you in a service industry with clients to say, you know what, I just really can't engage with this because it's not good for me. That's a really tough thing to do. And I want to share this term with your listeners. And I'm curious if it's one that's come up on your earlier podcast of compassion fatigue. Is that one that you guys have talked about before? I haven't talked about it, but I've read that in a few Facebook groups before. Mm -hmm. What is that exactly? So we all know about trauma. Trauma is when you live through something unexpected, scary that, you know, can leave you feeling traumatized. Compassion fatigue is what we call a vicarious trauma. So you yourself are not the one who's being injured, who's who's feeling afraid, but you're watching someone that you love go through trauma. This is a concept that was first studied in like the mid 80s with people like nurses and ER physicians and, you know, people like counselors like myself. And now there's some research coming out that's looking at expanding our understanding of compassion fatigue to include groups like parents raising kids with disabilities, because it really fits. You know, what a lot of parents describe is not necessarily burnout, right? They're not tired of doing the caregiving tasks. There may be some of that, but it's more this, like you described, this feeling of, I I can't get it right. I can't keep up. I'm overwhelmed by what might happen next. You know, and I I love this person who I'm caring for, but I sometimes feel this weird mix of resentment coming in, irritation, just fatigue, numbing out, you know, needing to get away from it all. And one of the best things you can do if you're feeling that way is to cut back on the amount of things that you have to care about. So I'm right there with you. Most of my clients know I do not know what's going on in the world. I don't really watch the news because I can't. I need to show up for my clients and, you know, unfortunately just not be concerned with the things that are on the daily news because they don't they don't help me to give the compassion i need to the people you know who i need to show up for mm, that's fascinating so i think that's a wonderful thing that you're doing setting that boundary well my job isn't as delicate and as serious as yours but you know i see multiple clients and i can't talk about that for 10 hours i'll die <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows that hairdressers are frontline mental health workers. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's actually really true. I'm going to say it and take that licensure. Yeah, it is. And I love them. And, you know, my heart is so open to them. And I don't like extra stuff like that coming in. A hundred percent. Really? Yeah. Because it's not why I'm there. (laughs) Nope. Nope. So I, I think that's a fantastic tip. Another one that I would say would just be don't get hung up on what everybody else is doing. You know, I talk about this with parents all the time and they'll say, you know, how is it that this mom across the street or this mom at the PTA has it all together? And, you know, we really try to break it down and look at, you know, look, that person has a different life from than you, you know, maybe you have anxiety and they don't. Maybe you have three kids and they only have one, but they also have different values from you. You know, you may 
not value cooking. You may not love to cook. It may not bring you joy. So it's not something you do often. So if you see that other mom, you know, preparing a five course meal every night for her kids, that's clearly something she values. So she's not doing something that you are doing because none of us can do it all. And so if you see other people who it feels like are getting it all done, you're probably missing that they're not doing some of the things that you're doing. I had this conversation with a parent yesterday and we looked at, okay, you know, here's the mom who seems perfect, but you had to take your three kids to 12 different appointments last week and she didn't have any. And so there's our difference, you know? That explains a lot about what she's able to get done that you can't. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously with social media, that is probably making it a little more difficult for some parents. But also, yeah, just kind of remembering your own gifts, right? I think that's really important. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, your contribution may not look the same as other people's. And that is not just okay. That's better for everyone. Yes, totally. So what would you say to the parents, the caregivers, the adults with disabilities, physical or intellectual, who can't afford to to get therapy or who can't find the time to make it a priority, but know that they need to make a shift? What would you say to people who are kind of teetering on the idea of getting help? You know, certainly there are less formal ways to get support that can look a myriad of different ways. It could be a support group that you even create with other parents. It could be, you know, just finding finding social media groups where you do feel welcomed and it feels like, you know, there's a spirit of collaboration and sharing and teaching and learning. You know, you could grab a mental health workbook. You could read blog posts written by other parents like yours just to feel some validation that, hey, I'm not alone in this. But, you know, of course, I'm going to say a very therapisty thing, which is if you realize that doing something would help you <laughs> and you're not doing it, we call that avoidance. And so looking at, you know, what do you what do you get out of that avoidance? That avoidance is serving you somehow. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. So, you know, what does it let you hold on to? Maybe you worry that, you know, you will finally have to address, you know, I don't know, maybe it's unhealthy coping skills. Maybe you know that you've been drinking too much since your child was diagnosed and going to therapy is going to cause you to have to confront that and be honest about that, you know, and you can say it's because you don't have time. But I talked to a lot of parents who have made time for a lot of appointments <laughs> since their <laughs> child was born. True. And, uh, you know, we, we make time for the things that matter. So is counseling difficult? Absolutely. It is hard, hard work. Counseling is not the 45 minutes that you spend talking to a therapist. It's everything that you're inspired to do after that conversation. But, you know, if, if you're ready to do the work, if you have hope that you could be feeling better than you are right now, yeah, it's probably time. Uh, I really like the therapy terms, too. Thanks for that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think that people think that they don't need a therapist until there's a few things, right? Trauma, dark depression, extreme anxiety, uh, PTSD. I hear that a lot in our world. I've also heard that PTSD is super equivalent to that of veterans, parents like me. Have, is that true? Is that just a, an internet thing that's happened? It's interesting. There was one study that found that if you actually look at the result, there was like this one article that looked at it a few years back. Um, if you actually look at the results, that's not quite what they were saying, but they were saying more that parents of kids with disabilities are more likely to have PTSD type symptoms, which is not the same as, because we don't know which caused the other, right? It could be that people who've experienced trauma in the past are more likely to have kids with disabilities. So we, we can't say that 
you know, it's necessarily correlated in a certain direction. That being said, I actually, something just ran across my email this morning and I didn't even look at it, but it's, it's something that's being studied more and more as to what is considered trauma. And again, I personally predict a lot of this, we're going to start to call vicarious trauma in the next couple of years, because yeah, that moment of diagnosis feels traumatic, but for a lot of parents, it's bigger than just that one moment. It's sort of that shift in your mind from I'm having a child and I'm going to raise somebody who's going to be my partner and, you know, my peer one day and who may even take care of me one day to, oh, I am entering into lifelong parenthood. And there, you know, especially for parents of kids with rare diseases, you know, there aren't a lot of other people who can give me feedback on what to expect. And I just feel very alone. And I, that's more ongoing trauma, but also the trauma of watching your child, you know, not be accepted and having to advocate for them, whether it's at school or later in life at work and, you know, the whole lifestyle, it's, it's very different from, you know, somebody who's been in a bank when it was robbed or, you know, even, even somebody who's experienced domestic violence. It's, it's a different experience because it's, yeah, I chose this, but also I'm having a hard time with this. So what are some things, I know you said we have to change our mindset, right? To even get to the point where we make an appointment with someone like you. What are some things that we can do to bring a little balance into our lives? Something we can't complain about with time or money. Like what are the simple things? I know for me, a lot of the simple things really will take a lot of stress away from me in a day. And I'm constantly trying to find what those things are and what days I need which one. But do you have any like small ideas for parents and caregivers like me to just help calm down. Again, it's one of those things you've heard it probably hundreds of times, but taking a few checks during the day or taking five minutes even just to say, I'm just going to observe my natural breath. I'm not going to try to change it at all. I'm just going to pay attention to my breathing. And, you know, then over time, okay, now I'm going to focus on starting to breathe deeper and really use my diaphragm. We know that that simple act has so many benefits for our brains and bodies. But what I hear from so many parents is, again, it's not that I didn't know to do that, but it's I forgot to keep prioritizing that. So, you know, maybe you set alarms on your phone. Maybe you put reminders up, you know, in various places, you know, hey, did you breathe today? You know, I have clients who write themselves little notes, you know, the sooner you drink water, the sooner you'll feel better kind of thing in their fridge. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. That's a good idea. That's um, a good idea. Yeah, I mean, visuals when when a when a person who typically, you know, if your child's teacher calls you, you know, have their photo on your phone be something that says, you know, breathe, maybe this could be a foot good phone call. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, you know, because those are the thing. Those are the moments, right? When everybody tenses up, they stop breathing like, oh, crap, what is this going to be? You know, and we, we automatically ask ourselves the negative what if questions? What if my child bit someone? What if my child had another big seizure? But we don't think what if they're calling to tell me that my child won an award? What if they're calling to share a wonderful story of how my child was helpful today? Both are just as likely to be true before you answer the phone. So why not consider both? Both are just as likely to be true. That's a good reminder. So just little things that can help you remember those minds, mindset things. Yes, I love that. Yes. So finding those little ways to keep yourself tracking positive or at least balanced. Yeah. And I'm so glad you as a therapist just told everyone to breathe because people still kind of think that's a little woo woo and it's clinically proven everybody. Ask Rose. 
Yes, absolutely. There are all the research articles on it. I actually, I have on my website, it's a really old article that I did, but um, so I write blog posts and some are geared more towards adults with disabilities and others are geared more towards parents. This one is in the adults with disabilities section, but it's about how to do progressive muscle relaxation for people with intellectual disabilities. And it literally talks you through, you know, how to breathe deeply with intentionally tightening your muscles and releasing them in a very specific order, which is one of the best things we can do for relaxation. It takes no more than five minutes a day. And it just, it lowers, you know, reduces hypertension, risk of, you know, all kinds of different diseases. And it's just, you know, anxiety, everything. It improves everything, but it's just remembering to do it. Yeah. Remembering to do it. My girlfriend, Cynthia was telling me that she was teaching her daughter how to breathe. And I think that would be a really helpful blog post. I'm going to find that one. Okay. Yeah. I can definitely send you the link, you know, if it's something that you're interested in, but I think a lot, it's interesting because a lot of my clients with disabilities have worked with somebody in the past who tried to teach them how to breathe deep, but that's a pretty abstract thing really. So in the post, I focused on ways to make it very, you know, visual, tangible, you know, so that it's a more active thing versus, you know, if somebody tells you to clear your mind, <laughs> that's hard to do <laughs> if you don't really know what they're talking about. Sure, sure. Yeah. So you're dealing with, I mean, you're dealing with a population, a demographic of people who are probably pretty dismissed in everything, but especially maybe in your world as a therapist. Like, how have you figured out a way to connect with adults with maybe intellectual or cognitive disabilities other than just training? Like, are there these classes that you've taken to like kind of know how to sit with it with them? Gosh, I wish. Um, <laughs> there, there are some, there are not a ton. And there, you know, what's out there is very minimal. This is just an art. You know, so I, like I said, I have that background experience as a case manager to draw from. But then I, I think it's just a matter of, to some extent, putting myself in their shoes of, you know, if I had no control over my life down to, you know, what am I going to wear today? Um, how am I going to spend my money? You know, how, who do I want to date? Am I allowed to date? You know, and I have clients who are older than me and that's the question that's on the table. It's pretty easy to imagine how frustrating that would be. You know, in terms of the mechanics, it's really just kind of how can I adapt this to meet this person's needs, whether that's physical or intellectual, how can I check in, make sure that they're understanding what I'm saying, how can we go out and apply this in the real world? You know, that's a real difficult thing for a lot of adults with disabilities to translate something that they learn in one setting and put it into practice in real life. But again, that's where uh, the online therapy comes in handy sometimes because, you know, my client can go do something that we talked about them doing and then we can literally have a session and process it, you know, in the moment in real time, you know, if they had to go make a return at Target or something and they were anxious about that. Yeah. Um, then we can do a session where they're that's in awesome. the parking lot at Target and we talk about what just happened and oh my god yeah it's, you know so and I think that you know using technology a lot of my young adults especially those on the autism spectrum um, who also have anxiety they just seem so much more comfortable interacting through that online interface versus here in the office and that's great you know they've got the home court advantage they're in their bed or whatever and <laughs> they feel good so I think it's for therapists it's just a matter of being flexible realizing that you know there's not ever going to be a playbook that works for every client with disabilities. This isn't standardized treatment like, you know, oh, here's a succession protocol for OCD and we'll run this and you'll feel better. It's not going to be that. You really have to adapt to each client's needs, but I love it. So 
Yeah, I mean, and you're genuinely empathetic and you have this amazing insight to pull from. It's really fascinating. You're just like the perfect person to be doing this. I love it. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Well, I know I do have some adults with disabilities listening, so maybe if they haven't, hopefully they can get a little inspiration to know that there are therapists out there for them if they need someone to talk to. And maybe they've already found you. Who knows? I mean, I, this is my biggest hope is for me in the next few years to get some competition. I hope (laughs) there are more people that recognize, you know, both the needs of people with disabilities and of parents, because how good the fit is, is really what makes the difference between will therapy work or won't it? Because I talk to a lot of people who say, oh, you know, I tried therapy. It didn't, it didn't really work. It wasn't a good fit. And again, it's one of my silly analogies, but I always say like, if you took your car to the mechanic and it still makes that sound after you leave, well, you don't give up on mechanics. You just find a new one <laughs> um, yeah. that understands what you need a little bit better. And it's the same thing with therapists. You know, if you tried with one and it didn't work, great. Now you have some information about what you don't like, you know, things that they did that you can say, I'm really not interested in doing this type of work, or I really like somebody who gives me a lot of homework and my last therapist didn't. You know, that's great information to bring to the table, but it doesn't mean that therapy as a whole isn't for you. It just means you still haven't found the right person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's becoming easier too online, right? People putting their bios and all of that. And can't you get like a complimentary sort of chat in some way to decide if you want that therapist? So some people offer that. I sort of informally offer it, but don't publicize that. If people call me, I'm happy to talk with them. But like you said, I think, again, it's sort of in that movement towards a lot of counselors are becoming very niche and and having very specific populations they work with. You know, generally one look at a therapist's website, you should be able to tell does this person understand my pain? Can they help me solve my problems? Have they helped other people like me? Those are really the top three things you're looking for. I think you should make a little PDF on your website about all of your little epithets. <laughs> They're so silly, <laughs> but they work. They're really useful. And I think parents like me sometimes need that <laughs> tunnel vision, like help me. Okay, I get that. Well, Rose, is there anything else that you would like to share for any parents or caregivers out there who are really struggling right now? Find whatever it is that gives you hope. You know, whether that's, I mean, I know we've talked about a lot, whether it's talking with a therapist, connecting with another parent who maybe their child is similar to yours, don't get hung up on the disability and the, you know, specific gene mutation, because you may never find that parent whose experience is just like yours, but look for, you know, hey, my child, you know, the school isn't following the IEP and um, they're falling behind and they're melting down at school. You know, have any other parents out there experienced this? Yep, you bet. And their kids may have a myriad of different diagnoses than your child, but they know your experience if that's what you're willing to share. So, you know, put yourself out there. Don't get hung up on sharing resources. Share your actual feelings about what's going on. There are other parents out there who will connect with you, who will build you up. And, you know, like I said, do the things that that you need to do to find those minutes of quiet, get away from the noise, even just five minutes a day of, you know, breathing deeply and focusing on that and nothing else is one of the best things you can do for yourself. Amen, Rose. Amen. That's really easy if you actually think about it. So those aren't big, hard things, really. 
another one of my things that I always say is, um, Oh yes. Give me another one. We, we live in this age where self-care has become this like very glossy, expensive thing, right? It's like very Instagram worthy, but that's not what real self-care is. And I know we're probably running short on time, but I'll just share one more little, um, saying of mine, which is that there's one thing that we all did this morning for self-care and none of us skipped it and we would never consider skipping it. And it's brushing our teeth. Oh, I thought you were going to say coffee. Okay, you're right. Well, that too. <laughs> no, but I'm I'm married to a weirdo who doesn't oh, drink it. So. God, <laughs> I know, and he's amazing and nice in spite of it. It's wild. That's suspect. Um, it indeed. But no, we all we brush our teeth, right? We we take the two minutes. We we do the things we've done it every day. No matter how stressful a day we have ahead, we would never say, "Oh, I'll save the two minutes and and just not brush my teeth." We always make the time to do it. It's it's boring. It's habitual. It's unquestioned, right? It is just part of the day. Whatever it is you do for self-care needs to feel like that. So the parents I work with know that I will challenge them to what I call the toothbrush test. And if they say they're doing something for self-care, I want to hear that they're doing it as regularly and consistently and would never take a break from it just the way they wouldn't from toothbrushing. Um, Because until we hit that point, the mindset isn't fully there. Totally. Non-negotiables. Little baby steps. Exactly. Yeah, yes. that's huge. I'm gonna I'm gonna use the toothbrush thing. That's a really good way to look I, at I it. I love it. Use yeah, away. <laughs> it's so simple. And you're right. I mean, Instagram has glamorized everything, but especially self care. And I think people can kind of get caught up in the sea of uh, not feeling like they can ever feel good because they can't afford the things that other people are doing for self care. And sometimes it's teeny tiny. One hundred percent. And you know, don't do nothing because you can't do everything do something. Something is better than nothing. Rose, thanks so much for talking to me. I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to wrangle you in another time for a specific topic. I would love that. This has been so fun. (laughs) Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.